Welcome to Prima's 2023 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Senior Director of Education and Training at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Gary Stanley will discuss the first responders protect us. Let's help them heal. Gary is the Senior Vice President and Medical Officer at Harvard MedTech. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Jerry. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. To start, most public entities have first responders as part of their workforce. What are the specific issues that can arise with these important employees, specifically when they suffer a workplace injury? You know, that's an interesting question because I think, you know, typically when we think about injuries to our first responders, we typically go to the more grandiose, the big, the accidents, the fires, the shootings, the larger events. But a lot of the things that, in my opinion, especially having been a doc taking care of this population, is the big events are easy to identify because they're big. They get a lot of attention. But it's the chronicity of the small micro trauma. I always kind of refer to that as death by a thousand paper cuts, that it's every day going to work and having to respond to somebody else's emergency and having to put it on the back burner. And then just the culture of the first responders themselves. It's a very, very tough culture in which you, you start young in your career and you grow up and there's this sense of you need to be tough, you need to be strong. You know, put your emotions, put your feelings in a bottle, put them on the shelf, forget about those so that we can do the job. It's that chronicity of small traumas that's very cumulative over time. You know, that's the place where a lot of times people don't feel comfortable talking about it. They don't really have an opportunity to speak with somebody about the fact that, you know what, I haven't had any one major event, but man, I'm tired or, you know, I'm drained. I'm just having a really hard time dealing with a lot of the trauma and a lot of the emotion that I deal with as a first responder. If we think back to the last couple of years uh, with COVID, they were essential workers. So while the rest of the world was working from home or shutting down, they were still going to work. But a lot of cases, they were, you know, first line and second line of care for patients because family members couldn't get to take care of their folks. So police officers, firefighters, first responders, look at doctors and nurses that were having to be by a patient's bedside as both the care provider but also serving as that friend and counsel and support structure for the person because we weren't allowing people into the hospitals. So you know, as we look at these, it's it's easy to focus our attention on the macro events, but a lot of times it's those small cumulative micro events that really, really escalate and impact people's lives in a very, very meaningful way. How can these problems be identified so they can be treated? I think identification of these problems is one of the more tricky parts as we look at treating first responders. Because the culture is such that it's not, a lot of times people don't feel comfortable self-reporting. So a lot of times what we're looking for is wellness departments or different adjusters, different leaders within the organization, supervisors, or looking within the organizational hierarchy to say, you know, here's somebody that I'm noticing just seems a little bit more tired. They may not be as chipper. They may not be as happy. What are the things that we can do to say, hey, you know, how are you feeling today? Start building that into our performance reviews. So instead of just talking about the job, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, how we can improve, ask, how are you doing as a person? How are you feeling? How's the stress of this job weighing on you? So that as we're looking at this, it's a much more holistic perspective, you know, it, especially for first responders. They're focused very much on the biomedical aspect of what's going on in the world. There's an emergency, they respond, okay? And they're solving that immediacy of the problem. It's that second level of once they take care of that person in the emergency, they get to go to the hospital, they get to go to where they're going, 
and then they can get the additional levels of psychological and social support. Think about our first responders. They're immediately out there delivering this care at the drop of a hat. Somebody calls 911 and they respond. Who's there to help support them from a psychological and a social standpoint? And then when they do reach out, a lot of times what I hear is they're reaching out and they're being sent to their EAP programs where they're being referred to counselors, most of whom are not trained in trauma-informed care. So it's how can we not only get the folks that are asking for help, the care that they need, it's making sure that they're getting the appropriate care when they do reach out, but then really create a culture within that first responder community of not only addressing performance, but that personal aspect of how are you doing as a person and really approach this from a, a very biopsychosocial model or a very holistic model where we're treating the people that are that are caring for our communities as individual people as well. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. So what are some of the new solutions for helping with these complications? You know, I think as we look at some of the new solutions, it's important to first understand what are our historic solutions, of which there really weren't a lot. Uh, the vast majority of our historic solutions, like I alluded to, is somebody says they've got a problem, they get referred to their EAP, or they, they get referred to somebody for some level of counseling. The goal of that counseling is you want to make sure that they're receiving trauma-informed care. The problem with that historical model is that there's a lot of barriers to that care. People have to say they want help, then they have to reach out to a number, then they have to wait for a list, and they have to actually go see somebody off-site on the days that they're not working. So it's that the difficulty in coordination. One of the things that I'm seeing and I work with really closely is VX therapy, which is the application of in-home virtual reality that's guided by master's level behavioral health clinicians. So the patients are getting something in home that comes to them. We're getting rid of all the barriers of patients having to go into the marketplace, having to go into the world where all that we do is create these hurdles that they have to get over, of which sometimes they just stop. We're actually going to the patient where they live to start engaging them every day using that virtual reality technology. But every week we're touching bases with them using a trauma trained for behavioral health clinician who's really good at trauma-informed care, who understands the concept of macro and micro and cumulative trauma so that every week we can adjust our program to make sure that we're really driving towards aspects of that patient's, what I refer to as normalcy in their life, that we're getting them sleeping, we're getting them moving, we're improving social skills, we're improving behavioral skills, we're getting them more of those foundational life skills so they can deal with the stress and the rigors of being a first responder. So. That's a place where I really like it because instead of having the patient go receive care, we're actually bringing the care to the patient where they can receive care without all the hurdles, with a lot of autonomy, where they don't feel like they've got to share with the world, hey, I'm talking to somebody, hey, I'm getting help. It still gives them the protection that in a culture that really demands that level of emotional sturdiness, they have the ability to be a little bit vulnerable and say, hey, I do need some help. I would like to talk to somebody. I would like to see how I can improve my sleep so they can then start treating themselves at home. What's really neat about the model, besides the fact that we're meeting the, these caregivers where they live, is that we're seeing permanent reprogramming and rewiring of the brain so that as they're dealing with continued amounts of that micro trauma just every day as they're going to work and they're caring for our communities, they're now much more resilient moving forward. Does that make sense? certainly does. I think it's a great way to get people introduced into the therapeutic process without making them feel like they have something wrong with them, without making them feel like they need to see a therapist or a shrink or a counselor. It's a way that they're getting that level of care and support without feeling like they themselves are the patient, that there's something wrong. It's a way to engage them in which they have a lot of fun. 
Uh, and that's what we hear from all of these patients is they're coming back saying, I actually really, really enjoyed this. This was fun. This was enjoyable. And then they're feeling better. They're sleeping better. And we're seeing just dramatic improvement across all aspects of their life over the course of the program. How can these new approaches be used in the relief or avoidance of chronic pain without drugs or unnecessary surgery? So when we think about things specifically around chronic pain, and I have a lot of discussions with people around the country about this, if we think about pain in its purest form, pain is very much a defense mechanism for our body, right? We, we see this with our kids. We see this in the community. You see somebody touch something that's hot, and you take your hand off what's hot. You touch something sharp, and you pull back. If we think about this in terms of athletics, you see an athlete who's running, and they pull their hamstring or they tear a, a ligament in their knee, they immediately slow down. That pain is an alert signal. Much the same way that pain is an alert signal, if we think about our first responders, some of the anxiety or the depression or some of the PTSD that they're seeing is an alert system for them saying, hey, you're dealing with a lot. You need to pull back. Here's, it's a caution signal to say we need to do something different. Through the lens of pain specifically, and we see this with, with kids and the way they're playing video games, or if you listen to a book on tape, you have the ability for your brain to deprioritize signals that are of, of less importance. So if we think about pain and depression and anxiety, those are very low-order signals in the brain, meaning they're meant to be protective and then stop. Okay, above that, you get into different cues like vibration, which is why the dentist, when they give you a shot in the gum, will shake your cheek. They know that the brain will preferentially focus on the vibration over the painful needle stick. That's something called the gate-controlled theory of pain. Well, we know that in the brain, above that vibration, you get into other physiologic cues, like am I thirsty, am I hungry, am I tired, do I need to use the restroom? Above that, you get into auditory cues. Above that, you get into more visual cues, which is why if we listen to a book on tape in the car, we forget that we're tired. It allows the time to pass quicker. We're not as thirsty. We're not as hungry. It allows us to suppress some of those other physiologic cues. People always say that if you go to Las Vegas, You'll forget that it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you haven't ate, you're not tired, you're not thirsty because of all of the audible sounds from the machines and all of the lights and cues are suppressing those physiologic cues. What we're seeing using this VX therapy, because it's virtual reality and it's completely immersive, we're able to control all of the audio and the visual inputs that a patient is receiving, thus suppressing not only the physiologic cues, but those lower level signals like pain, depression, and anxiety so that used with chronicity and guided by that behavioral health clinician, over the course of the program, you're able to treat patients acutely like they were taking an opiate. Okay, so they can get immediate relief in a non-pharmacologic way because the brain is shutting down how it's looking at those painful stimuli or those depressive or anxious stimuli. So you're getting that acute relief, but over the course of time, what the brain does is it permanently deprioritizes those signals. It will say, the signal is still there, but clearly it's not a priority because we're not fixating on it as much. So it's creating new pathways within the brain that are allowing patients to be much more resilient. So it's a completely non-pharmacologic, non-surgical way in which you're seeing long-term permanent reprogramming within the brain to allow patients to get back to normal, to get back to their lives in a much, much more resilient way. If we think about this in terms of our first responders, what's really neat about this is if they're dealing with pain, say they've got chronic pain or they've got an injury, if they're dealing with anxiety or depression, they now have a tool at their fingertips which will allow them to not only receive immediate and long-term relief, it's done in a completely non-pharmacologic way 
meaning they can do their job at the same time because they're not dealing with the sedative effects or any of the other cognitive effects of being on these opioids, these benzodiazepines, any of these medications that they may be taking, which are going to have really systemic side effects, which will limit their ability to be at work. So they don't have to step away from work in order to receive the therapy that they need to really promote normalcy and resiliency within their life. What is the application for this new therapy for other injured employees? You know, as we think about other injured employees, a lot of the conversations that I have around the industry are with what I would say two very different audiences that are trying to approach the same problem in different manners. The first audience is with insurance companies, payers, TPAs, folks that are on that side of the table that are looking at the overall cost of the claim and how could they ensure that the patient is getting better at what's probably the most fiscally responsible manner. Okay, So in those conversations, we're really trying to identify specific types of injuries and patients where we know we can provide the most support because they have the worst outcomes, the lowest return to work, and the highest surgical recidivism or need for second operations at that time. The other audience that I spend a lot of time talking with and educating is the opposite side of that equation, which is the doctors and the medical providers that are trying to treat patients. Okay, they're trying to deal with pain. They're trying to deal with surgical injury. They're trying to deal with underlying psychosocial determinants of health. But for years, their only tool has been drugs and or surgery. Okay, so for this group, they're looking at how can we improve our outcomes and make sure that we're getting patients back to work and having an experience that's the best possible experience for the patient so that they don't need to have another operation. What's been really interesting is being able to be in the middle of those two conversations. Both of those groups are really trying to look at the patient and try to get the same outcome, they're just approaching it very differently. So a lot of what we're doing is working to align all of those relationships and all of those stakeholders and really just show them we're all trying to row in the same direction, that we're trying to take a look at injured workers, whether it's somebody who's dealing with a back injury or somebody who's having a spine surgery, somebody who's dealing with a lot of underlying psychosocial issues where they have a lot of financial instability, they've got a lot going on in their home. Maybe it's an injured worker with a minor injury, but they were living paycheck to paycheck. And it's a multi-generational home in which they're caring for their parents and they may be caring for a child and the child's child where they were the sole breadwinner. And now he or she, that injured worker, has now gone from being paycheck to paycheck in a very tight, very socially demanding role to where now they can't provide in that same way. And that's just escalating all of those aspects. So how can we lead into that patient to give them the additional support to where they can start getting back to work, getting back to a modified duty plan where they know they can start improving. So it's getting the the payers and that side of the table and the providers on the other side of the table to all say, hey, we now have an application. We have a tool that allows for very holistic care of the patient. It allows for us to apply the biopsychosocial model of healthcare so that we can really drive and improve some of those underlying psychosocial determinants of health well, looking at pain, anxiety, depression, and PTSD to maximize the overall biomedical components of that patient's recovery while ensuring that their psychological and their social welfare is cared for at the same time. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.